Did you know a 2018 study showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual. When I was four months pregnant, I couldn't find a prenatal I could trust, so I created my own. Ours is made traceable, third-party tested for heavy metals, and recently earned the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. But don't just take my word for it. Get 25% off at virtual.com slash podcast. Hey, everybody, it's Joe Trippy, and welcome back to That Trippy Show. This week, I'm excited to talk to a special guest, old friend, Nick O'Malley. He was with me on the Dean campaign, helped invent a lot of the stuff out there today that you're seeing digitally and online and campaign tactics. Um, and I got to tell you, I read his newsletter, Nico's Thoughts, mostly about politics, he says, uh, religiously, and highly recommend it. We'll put it in the show notes, uh, a link so you can sign up. Uh, but anyway, it's great to be here with Nico. And Alex, why don't you take us away? Yeah, and I think, Nico, we're on Substack because you're on Substack. That's correct. Uh, I'm pretty sure you're, the, the URL for that, and we'll put it in the show notes, is nicco.substack.com. Is that right? Cool. Well, I, I, honestly, I, I, the first thing I got to ask, I know both you guys were on Dean together. I've heard the stories about you waking up with the, the keyboard imprint on your face. That was no, really the start. He used the keyboard start. as a pillow is what I told you. That was like the start of so much that we're seeing even today. So really, I just want your take on, on how things have evolved, what you see going on, and then we'll just hop in from there. Oh, that's a that's a nice broad question to start with. Uh, well, I really learned it all at Trippy's knee. What can I say? <laughs> Great. How's yeah, that? Blame it all. You're, on you're me asking again. the wrong guy. Maybe I should say. I mean, one of the things we definitely, you know, the reason I joined that campaign in part was because I was this nerdy kid and. Um, I was always being, you know, I was always in the board meeting, but it was like to fix the projector, right? Or keep the laptop from going into sleep mode. And so I was always in these rooms with important people talking about important things, but I was like the help. And I would listen to them talk and I would think, I don't know, that's not the world I live in. That's not what I, you know, and then I just assumed I was kind of young and stupid and I'm no longer young. But, uh, uh, and then I got on the Dean campaign and the only person really telling me what to do was trippy. <laughs> but there was other than that on days he was gone, I had a lot of latitude to do whatever, whatever we got to play a lot and try a lot of things. And, um, I realized that like the world I lived in was like almost completely different from the world the people in charge lived in that my experience of everything from shopping to communicating to working insurance was just a totally different experience, totally different world compared to the decision makers world. And that sense of disconnect between my reality and the reality of our leaders just like intensified after the Dean campaign, you know, that like, I'm pretty sure most presidential candidates 
had never bought anything on Amazon well after pretty much every American was paying their cable bill online and buying things on Amazon. That sense of disconnect always bothered me. And I thought, well, maybe this is just how the world works. And then I read this history of World War I, uh, The Guns of August by Barbara Tuckman. And she describes in the first five pages, first paragraph, the funeral of King Edward VII in May of 1910, which she says was probably the most opulent event in human history. Like the biggest guns, the biggest jewels, the biggest weapons, like everybody showed up to impress and they were all monarchies. Every, almost every single one, United States, Switzerland, I think, and somebody else. But 90 plus countries, and as I recall, just three democracies, the rest were monarchies or colonies. And uh, if you had attended that, you would have thought that the, the, the monarchy would last forever, forever. It looks so strong. And a few months later, the new King of England, King George, wrote a letter to his best friends and first cousins, the Kaiser of Germany and the Tsar of Russia, and said, just imagine in 2021 when our grandchildren will be monarchs of Europe and the colonies. And so the people in charge thought the thing was like so strong that it would never be challenged, that it was infinite, that it was granite, right? And actually it was all rotted out and just about to collapse in a blaze of violence and blood. And... Um, and I, 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 I kind of feel that I frequently feel that way, that, that the, the, the assumptions our leaders operate on, I felt this way since the Dean campaign, really, the, the world our leaders think we're living in is not the world we're living in. Uh, Nico, this is why I wanted to, to have you on today, because part of this is, is the fragility of where democracy or democracy is today. And, 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 People still, I think, uh, you know, at Stuart Stevens, when he was on the show uh, uh, a month or so ago, said this, that, that people under just do not understand how close we came in the November election to losing the, the whole thing, uh, to, to, to blowing our democracy up. I mean, by 44,000 votes in a few states. Um, and then I read your, your uh, newsletter piece uh, I think this past week, uh, where you talked about Barbara Tuckman and, uh, uh, and, and and this whole story, at the same time, looking at 2022 now, and so many people thinking, "Oh, we're out of the woods. Biden won," but no, we're we're in right back in it. Uh, 2022 could be. There's no time for complacency. The time is is now for people to to understand what the stakes really are. Anyway, so I, I wanted you on because this is exactly what I wanted yeah. to talk about. The stakes are pretty high. I mean, you know, it's about 44,000 votes if you think about the Electoral College for the separated Trump and Biden. You know, so Biden came within, or sorry, Trump came within spitting distance of victory. But look at the House, 32,000 32, votes separated uh, Republican from Democratic control in the House and just 14,000 votes in the U.S. Senate. And so 90,000 votes and the, the, the GOPT, I call it the GOPT, Grand Old Party of Trump, would have controlled all of Washington. And so it is on a razor thin edge. This idea that like we've won and it's gonna be great is lunacy. 
Yeah. And that is why they, you look at the competitive states next cycle, Georgia, Arizona, Michigan, Pennsylvania, they're, they're all trying to pass these laws to make it impossible to vote. I mean, Georgia, it's like coming close to criminalizing voting. And then you look at the state houses and the state legislatures and the state Supreme Court justices, and then the federal appeals court and the U.S. Supreme Court, all controlled by pretty partisan Republicans. And then you look at this giant media apparatus they have, the kind of clever uh, amplification back and forth between talk radio, Fox News, and digital publishers. And I look at it all and think, holy crap, they have the, they have the, the party of QAnon and Donald Trump have the competitive, competitive advantage. The next election is 18 months away. And what are we doing? We're like thrilled that uh, we got one relief bill passed. Like somehow this means, you know, it's all going to be okay. Yeah, no, and the 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 thing that uh, uh, you know the the big failure of twenty twenty was losing not not gaining a single uh, legislative win, uh, legislatures. I mean, a state uh, legislature. Yeah, didn't didn't they they, they won them all um, that were up. So that you know they're redrawing the lines, and so that whole apparatus that you're talking about starts off with with probably the ability to write 10 more safe Republican House seats than there are today. And we only own the, have the House by, you know, like you said, by about 30,000 votes, about, uh, you know, five, five seat margin of that. So people, I think, do not, and I've been pounding on it, but I think it's, it's you know, your thing about being vigilant that, that we cannot think that we've won the battle and that everything's going to be great now. Um, just rang so true to me. And again, I know Stuart Stevens over at Lincoln Project feels the same way. I just think, you know, as you say, we're running out of time. There's only, you know, we need to be registering people. We've got to be um, engaging in, in, in these districts now. Well, um, I, was, I was pretty skeptical post-election that Biden was the right was going to be the right candidate, the right person. Uh, you should have listened to me, man. I, I knew all along. You did. You did. I was, <laughs> yeah. I was, Joe's been on this for a long time. No, no, no. no listen. Biden cast. I remember having breakfast, breakfast with Joe a year and a half ago. And Joe's like, dude, it's Biden, Biden, Biden. And I was like, I, I can't, I cannot have any more old men. I can't have any. Joe, apologies. I can't have any yeah. more old men. No, I am an old man, man. But that's not. Because I'm basically very firmly in the camp that we need a real generational shift here. That the boomers. Oh yeah, you know definitely. But I think it would have been a really bad timing to have tried it in uh, in 2020 against against Trump. That's you think 20? You think you think 2024 is going to be better timing? It it may be. I mean, first of all, we got to make it to 2024. I, I'm with you. I really think. The odds are again with with their media apparatus, which we never really built on our side. You're starting to see, you know, beginnings of something, may you know, but but we just don't have that same. There's no Breitbart or any of that, you know, the the whole yeah. echo chamber um, that exists on their side, and the advantage they have in state legislatures, as you're seeing, to to do all these laws to suppress the vote. 
to, to, to redraw the, the districts to, to benefit them. This is something the, the districts that they're drawing and that they have the power to do are going to last 10 years. I mean, they could delay this whole thing. You know, one of the things that uh, uh, Ron Brownstein's piece that, that we reported on last week, where he, he said that basically the Republicans are putting up sandbags, uh, you know, against the inevitable tide. But the, with voter suppression and, the, and these other things, they can delay that. Those sandbags could hold us off for 10 years if they succeed in 2022. Um, and so that's really what's at stake. They're definitely driving towards minority rule. It is really nuts. Now, hang on, hang on. We spent like six months last year trying to calm Democrats down on this show, and this first 10 minutes are not exactly a beacon of hope. There have got to be some positives that we can learn from and, and work towards next year, right? I mean, look at their candidates so far. You know, they've got a lot of the same problems they had with the Tea Party in 2010, in which, you know, the likes of Mo Brooks and... Uh, uh, you know, others that are out there, you know, they're going to have, they're going to nominate some crazy people, uh, some, some of the crazier Trumpies. It will not matter whatsoever. That's the whole thing is that they have built a media world where you can live in total, uh, right. You, you can just live in like this encapsulated world and, uh, where, where, where checks money deposited into your account from the government does not change the view of things. So, Nico, one of the things you talked about, we've talked about on the phone, uh, is like, you know, if you had a one, the one thing you'd want to build is, you know, the the, the opposing media or, or, or some better media structure, right, to, to empower people. Um, uh, do you see that as a possibility? I mean, how would we do it? Well, uh, it's not a matter of how we must do it. Uh, and I have a few different crazy thoughts on this. I mean, one, one part is one part of this is that the reason, uh, in my view, a big part of the reason why this, uh, I, I hate calling it the conservative media machine, because uh, that suggests that there is a mainstream media. I think the mainstream media in America today is Fox, Newsmax, Breitbart, Dan Boingo, that is the mainstream media today. And the Washington Post, the New York Times, that's like the media of the coastal elite. And the mainstream media today, by which I mean the conservative media, they, uh, they have shaped the public opinion. They've shaped public opinion and the culture in, in roughly half of the country politically. And what I mean politically is because of the nature of uh, the American political system, it's not about majority, right? It's about, uh, it, it's about kind of the electoral college and the Senate and gerrymandering. And so they don't have to convince half the country. They basically only have to convince 25 or 30% of the country. And they've done that. And they got that 25 yeah. or 30% of the country living in this encapsulated world. Now, one of the reasons that was possible is that uh, local news disappeared. That, um, you know, in 1980, uh, there were about as many local news journalists, full-time jobs in local journalism as there were in the steel industry. And uh, today the steel industry has more jobs than local journalism. And that, over that time, we have this whole narrative about the collapse of the steel industry. I mean, we call it the freaking rust belt. 
but we don't talk about the collapse of journalism in that way. And the yeah. collapse of local journalism means a you you don't your kids don't go to school with any journalist yeah, the, kids. You're yeah, not the you're local not, news desert. Yeah, you're it's, not you're not going to like Cub Scouts or church with a journalist. It also means that you have no information about what's happening in your community. And thanks to, you know, the problem with Facebook is Facebook and uh, and deregulation of the FN spectrum and repeal of the fairness doctrine. You can just do just consume nothing but pure lies about the state of the world. So it's to get local again. Is that what you I mean, if you think we have to start at the local you, you know, like local community news. I know you've got something that you've been working on in it. I definitely yes, but... think local community news is one piece of this. To just talk about that for a minute, I basically don't care what it is as long as it's serious news. There's things like Courier, which is CourierNewsroom.com, which is trying to build a progressive local news network. Uh, you have things like uh, The Daily Yonder, which is uh, local news in rural communities in Appalachia. You have things like the American Journalism Project, which is, uh, you know, providing seed capital to help local newsrooms and local news entrepreneurs get off the ground. The, we just, we, it's like, we got to get a lot of stuff to happen. And I'll give you a historic, I've been thinking a lot about this, this problem, like the historical precedent for this problem. Like what what's a problem that was, very widespread in the United States, affected the culture and minds of citizens, and that there and, and that there was no top-down solution. It was all distributed and local. And I ended up zeroing in on the Carnegie Libraries. And the Carnegie Libraries, you know, Carnegie in, uh, Andrew Carnegie said he would subsidize the building of libraries. And over about the course of about 20 years, he paid for about 2,000 libraries to be built. Almost every single one of them is still in operation 140 years later. Uh, at the last 10 years of him building libraries, 8,000 copycat libraries were built. He changed the intellectual life of the nation. He really gave us, it's like the, it's foundational to, to our success in the 20th century or, or the Carnegie libraries. And when I went to understand how he did this, if you wanted a lot, him to build a library in your town, you had this form you had to fill out. And basically, the town leaders had to commit, make a 10-year commitment to the library's success. You had to have the chief of police, the high school principal, the pastor, the, the chair of the ladies' auxiliary, the mayor. You had to have everybody say, we really want this library, and we're going to make a commitment to it because it's going to be good for our community and the education of our children. And... And that's effectively the kind of thing we need today. We need communities to come together and say, we need quality local news so that we can get to know each other, so we can hold power accountable, so we can know what's happening here. And then that's where you start to build trust upon trust, right? That's where you start to get to a place you can combat the mainstream conservative media in, in, this, uh, in this day and age. And then... Yeah. And then you, you can do some interesting things from there. Yeah, the problem now, though, is, you know, at least out where I live, half the town won't talk to the other half of the town because they've got their Trump flags going. And I mean, I'm talking about particularly in the places where there's where where there is less local news. It's it's gotten so divided and poisonous that trying to bring people together is just, you know, just, it's just it, it's so easy 
to inject poison and divisiveness into the environment, um, that it's it, it's really going to be tough, I think, to to build it. I know uh, we've we've talked a lot about local community news and how we can start building it, but uh, uh, somebody needs to step up to the plate, like a Carnegie, and help fund it. I think to to, to give it a a real ch- a real shot. You know, the one thing getting back to politics, though, Nico. I just wanted to ask you something because something happened between the Dean campaign and, and, and afterwards. And that was, and, and what, you know, we had the blog and we had, um, you know, meetups and we tried to build a sense of direct communication between our supporters and the campaign and the candidate and his, you know, Dean and, and, and the, 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 the uh, out there. Um, and it almost seems like we, you know Obama in you know four years later did a lot of I mean incredible stuff and in a lot of ways expanded um, beyond our wildest dreams in terms of how to connect with people to fundraise and things like that. But the campaign never did tried. In fact, I think a lot of the people learned the lesson of the Dean campaign. Don't 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 talk directly to your supporters and have a direct link to them because they were always afraid that one of their supporters would do something crazy and, you know, and, 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 and cost the campaign, the, what, what happened. Um, and I think something really big got lost in losing that direct connection between a campaign that actually tried to build a direct connection between the candidate supporters. And, and, you know, the only candidate who did that since, was a guy named Donald Trump. You know, I remember how on our blog, you know, you would say something in the morning or I would or Howard would. Um, and then people would come on the blog and comment about it or make their own, you know, posts. And we would comment to them. And there was a direct, literally that direct interaction. One day I wake up and Twitter is is Donald Trump's personal blog. He's converted the entire Twitter literally into his personal blog. It's 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 literally the Democracy for America blog, but it's Twitter and it's owned by Trump and and, and the the direct connection he was making, um, and I just one part of me is terrified is like is that what we help create, uh, is that what we help pioneer, or two did we all miss something when. You know, when the response after the Dean campaign is, hey, they did a lot of things right, but just don't do that direct connection stuff, man, because <laughs> it'll, it, it'll it, it, you know. Uh, uh, anyway, I wanted your take on all that or whether you agree or uh, uh, I'm smoking something or although smoking something's legal in a lot of states now. So I basically I basically agree with you. Sometimes I say to my wife that I really hope my obituary is not the man who helped create political fundraising spam. It's like the only thing that the Democrats, the establishment yeah. took away from the Dean campaign is email is an ATM. And I think that totally misses the boat about what the, the way your approach to email, because it was your approach. You, like I remember the one, uh, the perfect storm, right? you wrote these really intimate emails to people that were heartfelt as the campaign manager telling them things that, you know, campaign managers had always operated way more in the background and 
It was a really transparent kind of thing. And I want to zoom out and say, this is not about email or the internet. I think there's a broader kind of political thing here too. You know, I was, I was thinking about uh, like AOC, right? Mm -hmm. AOC uh, cruised to reelection, man. She, she, she got reelected. She didn't have to do a damn thing to get reelected. Okay. But do you know what she did? She uh, organized her district to help people, uh, elderly people who were under, who were under lock and key in quarantine and were terrified about the coronavirus. And she also organized to deliver food to families without food in her district. Uh, she kind of had this view of politics that was about helping each other, that was not about winning per se, but was about really being intimate with her, uh, with her district, right, with her community. And then I just watched her again, you know, when we had this terrible stuff in Texas, uh, the, you know, yeah, the she extreme weather. She flew down to Texas and helped run food banks. Well, what did Ted Cruz do? Ted Cruz was in Cancun. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, now, you, frankly, you don't see a ton of Democrats following her lead in that way. Uh, and, you know, I'm not a socialist, but she understands that politics is actually about community, is actually about human connection. And that was the whole beautiful part of the internet 20 years ago. The internet was like this beautiful place of connection, yeah. right? And, uh, and of course, right. like the good Americans that we are, we've managed to commodify it and making about, make it about nothing but money and ugliness. And, and yeah, and now it's, it's a divisive thing yeah. that uh, uh, drives us further apart, or that lets us drive each other further apart, I guess. But, uh, when I was talking about local news, really what I care about at the end of the day, the only way out of most of our cul-de-sacs is turning to our neighbors, is community. And there are ways the internet can help us do that. And the ways it does, I can't, this is one thing I wish Facebook would do. I wish Facebook would have a little button next to like that says, let's schedule a meeting to, let, let's schedule time to talk about this face-to-face, -face, you and me. Like, uh, and let's do it at a local coffee shop. Right. Well, that was what we were doing with meetups. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. You know, we, we were literally uh, bringing people together, uh, which came out of the book, Putnam's Bowling Alone. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, it's just sort of like amazing how full circle this is all and how it just went wrong. I mean, in terms of... Uh, you know, there are people out there really trying to use technology to bring us together. And I think our campaign tried to really tried to do that. Uh, and then and then uh, again, in a lot of ways, oh, Obama succeeded. Great. We don't have to worry about anything. It's all what a great country <laughs> without realizing, you know, that, no, it was just the start of uh, of a long you know, fight that, again, we may we may taking it back to the 2022 uh, thing because we're not going to build the community news in in eighteen months, so it's real important that people understand the the stakes of that of this upcoming election. I think big stakes. Two things. I, two things I want to do with you, Trip, Trippy. One, one is that I wanted to. Um, I have a question I want to ask you about the leadership of the Democratic Party. Oh, great! Yeah. And the <laughs> second thing. The second thing I wanted to do was. Uh, 
brainstorm the five most likely craziest things that could happen between now and November 2022. So uh, on the first one, basically, you know, I, as you know, and as I said in my email newsletter, I am, you know, you look at the senior leadership of the Democratic Party, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, Dick Durbin, uh, uh, Steny Hoyer, uh, Joe Biden, they're like mostly in their 70s, 80s, <laughs> 70s. And oh, yeah. Like the average age, I worked it out at some point. It's like way up there. Like they're all old enough to be my grandparents and I'm 44. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, uh, and, and you look on the other side, that's not how it is. You got Paul Ryan, you got, or at least that's not how it was pre-Trump. Uh, well, I guess you have Matt Gates. <laughs> oh, great. Again, that's a consequence, Nico, to the party not investing in local legislative legis races for legislature, right? We 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 put so much of a focus on the presidential um, and on Senate rate, you know, on the uh, on the, the big federal stuff, and we've never been a party that organize i mean i mean for 20 years have not been the party that organized at the local level trying to win state legislature so have these people coming up so what's that do well 20 years ago that's where the republicans that's what they did they said no we're going to invest locally we're going to win these legislative races we're going to fight our fights uh and 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 have a big bench as you know for the future that will come out of all that, you know, people who would become future governors, future um, speakers, future presidents in their thinking. And, you know, their strategy over 20 years and including building the media echo chamber, et cetera, that they did. But those two things have paid dividends for them, uh, put them in this position where even after losing the popular vote nationwide, like, six out of the last seven times that, you know, they won the presidency as many times as we did yeah. in that period. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and look how close they came to keeping the house and the Senate this time. So when you look at all that, um, they, they also do yeah, we, they, we they, don't have, that's why we're ending up with what you're talking about. The, you know, this age gap between now you're starting to see, you know, Mayor Pete, I mean, there are people that are starting to come up, but, it, but how, how's that happening? Well, you got to run for president to get known in our party. I mean, it's literally, no, we have to, it, it's the same thing you're talking about with, with the community news. We have to get to community organizing, community candidates running for state legislatures, because by the way, if we don't do that, they'll be drawing the lines for another 10 years yeah. in, in 2030. This is how they're, and, and, and you know, the, the and, and the constitution between, the electoral college and the way the Senate's composed means that the minority that they are can hold on for a long time yeah. um, if we if we don't get back to that. But I I don't think it's any of the I mean, the, the other side of this is, you know, it doesn't mean that Joe Biden isn't the right guy to lead the country right now. Um, well, this is the thing. I was pretty that, skeptical, you know, as you know, that I looked at. Joe Biden and Chuck Schumer, and I was pretty skeptical these were the guys we needed. Now, Nancy's Italian-American, so of course, of course she's, <laughs> she's going to play well. Yeah, but, uh, but 
even though I was pretty skeptical 60 days ago, I'm watching them now and thinking, well, I don't know, maybe these three leaders, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, Joe Biden, who have been in D.C. something like a combined 180 years, uh, you know, maybe they um, maybe they're the right people right now that they know how to get these big projects off the ground like this trillion multi-trillion dollar infrastructure package like do you think well, they can pull that off do you think they're the right yeah. people to make that happen yeah and i think they're the right people because look i think the the thing is they all know how to count votes and they know that's what's important um and they know what it takes to get aoc and joe manchin to agree to what a package is and what kind of that give and take is going to going to going to take. And, you know, so if Nancy Pelosi tells Joe Biden, I've got the votes, he knows she's got the votes. If Schumer says, Joe, I've got the votes, he knows that. And if if Nancy's telling Schumer, I don't have them or Schumer's telling the president and her he doesn't. It's back to the drawing. How do we package something that, that Schumer can go sell because, damn it, he can count. And we and there's a trust there. So given that you only have 50-50 in the Senate and Kamala only breaks the tie, but you've got a leader who can count votes and you trust that he knows and, the, and his caucus does, too, in terms of being able to deal straight with him and tell him, no, you don't have me and here's why. And they have that same thing in a house where you only have a majority by five seats. I don't know who else. I'm serious. You know, I'm not the. I'm with you in terms of the hierarchy of the party and the age and all that. But, but the, I really think, given the circumstances, we we couldn't have. You know, I I I think it. I think we could have just landed. You know, to use the perfect storm email, the perfect storm of how to get things done right now in this environment. Maybe. Um, you know, we may be seeing it because they have the necessary experience. And I, I, that's an interesting point about Canada votes. I, you know, I keep thinking about that Tim Alberta book, American Carnage. And one of the main themes in that book is the Republicans in the House just couldn't count votes. They just never knew yeah. where that caught. They, oh, they were in control of the House, but they really weren't. Right. No, Ryan couldn't. That's that was the whole thing. That's what happened. So what happened was was. You know, during the Obama administration, you know, McConnell can count votes. He can. Uh, and he had control of that caucus. So if he told Obama, yes, we're, you have the Senate on this one. The problem was Ryan would say, yes, you have the Senate, the House on this one. He'd go back in the House caucus. The Tea Party guys would go crazy on him. He couldn't control them. He couldn't count on their votes. And he'd have to, it turned out he was reneging on the deal. How many times did we see that happen? Yeah. Um, so now I don't think the problem so much is McConnell. Uh, I mean, I know McConnell's a big problem. That's not what I mean. I still think McConnell can count votes. And if he if there's a way to, to you know, Biden could get to McConnell and say, you know, you know, how do we get two more votes here? Whatever. I think that's possible in the, you know, in their old Senate, how they you know, you know, tradition stuff. Um, I think McCarthy in the House, though, with the 147 who voted to overturn the election, oh, 139 House members, but to overturn the election who are just, you know, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, no way. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's Nancy, Schumer, Biden, and, and, you know, does 
McConnell, who understands um, that this infrastructure bill would probably help some of his Senate incumbents hold on to their Senate seats. Does he, you know, th that's sort of the combination because it won't be the Jim Jordans. It won't be in the House at all. Ooh. It's going to be Nancy in the House and there may, and, and if we have to do it, you know, breaking up the filibuster, whatever, I'm not getting into the, I don't want to get into the filibuster argument here because God knows it should be reformed, but I'm just saying, it, you know, but, but I'm saying that uh, uh, I do think that, yeah, you ask, could these three people get us through it yeah. uh, and get that thing passed? Yeah, I think they can. And what's your other one? Uh, oh, before, God. Before we go to the other one, before we go there, I got more <laughs> questions for you. So what do you think about uh, this idea that, do you think, uh, you just said McConnell may, may know that a big infrastructure bill is going to be good for his incumbents, but don't you think that that gives the Democrats a chance to say, these guys, the GOP never voted for anything? I mean, like, basically, yeah. how nationalizes our politics? Like, how much? Oh, no, they're, 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 it's very nationalized, very po po polarized. But what you're, you're starting to see is what Biden and Democrats are proposing is very, you know, got widespread approval with the American people. So on the $1,400 checks, right? And they voted against it. Your point exactly. Now they vote against the infrastructure thing. Um, they're they're, they're going to have problems. So does McConnell, who can count votes, who does want to get back in the majority, you know, he could conceivably, you, you know, uh, let let his senators go, let them be free to vote the way they want to on infrastructure. And it was a pretty but, clever know. move on the Democrats to bring back the earmarks, right? Because not only does that help them, and that helps with the vote counting. But yeah. that's really going to put pressure on some of these. Like, I, I don't think I had fully appreciated how much the, the absence of the earmarks encouraged crazy members in the House. No, that that's, yeah, exactly. So I think, I just think, no, I think we've got the right leadership. Uh, you know, are they as progressive as somebody wants? Are they this, you know, are they, you know, do they have new young, you know, new ideas and, and vision? Although, you know, frankly, with what the, the Biden can't, the administration is putting forward. There are a lot of pretty cool ideas coming, you know, whether it's out of transportation or something. So, you know, I, I think, again, the Pete Buttigieg, you know, Mayor Pete is, you know, you see a new generation in the party. And like I said, unfortunately, what we've become is a party that, you know, gets new blood by running for president. I think we need to, to, to do a better job of recruiting at state legislature rates, races for state legislature. Um, I think we should be, you know, the, the, the 50 state strategy of Howard Dean, you know, run in every district. I mean, people out there, you know, run, you know, we yeah. need, we need new, new people and new yeah. blood. Okay. My other question was, what are, let's brainstorm some of the craziest things that could happen that would throw the next 18 months into even greater chaos there's just so many different things that could go, you know, that could create that, uh, from anything from a variant that, uh, means we're yeah. all back in it again, yeah. uh, which is going to come. I don't mean the variant from this one, but we all know, I mean, people should know that these pandemics are coming at a more rapid rate and, uh, we're likely to see another one, uh, in short order, whether it's two years from now or five years from now, but that, uh, uh, 
you know, or hopefully 20 years from now, but it, there's going to be another one. It won't be another, it won't be hundred years like Spanish flu and, and COVID. But I mean, I guess China. But do, do you think any of the geopolitics will change the, the, lo, the, 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 the political dynamic, the domestic political dynamic? No, I don't. Well, I mean, unless there's some commonality. I mean, when we lost the Soviet Union as a, as a you know, the enemy, I mean, that's also part of what happened. You know, there was a common thing that Americans were could rally around, you know, and that's now, gosh, who knows who's rooting for Russia or rooting against Russia in the United States. Listening to Fox News, imagine a debate between Biden and Putin and rooting for Putin. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. This is where the form of madness. But I do think like, you know, Taiwan, there are things that could happen here that don't have a lot to do with with who's the president of the United States is, but could totally change the direction of of where things are going. You mentioned you talked about this and as one of your things you're talking about in your last newsletter, I think, about about China, if I remember right. Yeah, no, no. Yeah. Uh, What if like a big boat gets stuck somewhere and just totally screws international trade? It is it is interesting just how interdependent everything is, though, at this point. Yeah. So. Yeah. But that's what I'm saying. So now you're at a place where, yeah, that a boat, you know, now they got that one fixed in time. Hopefully that it, it's, it's going to have long term impact, but not, you know, we're talking weeks or months, not my, not my mother-in-law. Forever. My mother-in-law can't get her special cat food for her cat. And she's convinced it's because the Suez Canal is blocked. And I'm not, I have not been able to verify that that's the truth. <laughs> or to, or disprove it. And that's Correct. the problem. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> she read it on the internet, Joe. Yeah. <laughs> All right, guys, we're getting close on time here, but Nico, I can't let you go without asking you, what, do you have a trippy story oh, that most of the people listening to this haven't heard? And it should be as embarrassing as possible. Oh, great. Oh, oh I have I have many. I have many. Oh, great. That's great, Alex. I'm going to have to tell one about Alex afterward. No, sorry. No, no. One of my favorite tri- trippy stories was, um, you know, the, the office was pretty, was relatively small and we had dozens of desks just crammed into this one room and Trippy's office was there. And it was like the only office in the room. It was just a big open bullpen, right? And um, a desk right out, my desk, there, there are a bunch of desks right outside the door to Trippy's office. Mine, another guy named Garrett Graff, who was like the junior press aide. And Trish Enright, who was the press secretary, says to Garrett, um, Trippy needs a statement about I don't remember, X, Y, or Z. So Garrett writes a statement, prints it, gives it to Trish. Trish takes it into Trippy, and we hear Trippy screaming, this is the worst thing I've ever read in my life. Is there no one in this place who's competent enough to write a halfway decent press release? And he crumples it into a ball and throws it out the window, and it, like, comes out the door, and it, like, comes sailing out of the door and, like, plop, 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 bounces and lands at the foot of Garrett's desk. And Trish Enright comes out and picks it up and smooths it out on Garrett's desk. <laughs> says, Joe wants a few edits. <laughs> <laughs> like like he didn't hear any yeah, of it. Yeah. And, so that's my favorite and of course, Garrett goes off to be one of the great writers, uh, right. several great books. You know, he was another really incredible talent in that campaign. Even though I... 
I did crumple up his his uh, his first offering. <laughs> Nico, thank you, man, for for being with us today. It's like it's oh, just so good to. I love to, you so uh, much. I've learned so much from you over the years. I'm just the gratitude. That's mutual, life. man. You know it. I love you. Thanks everybody for joining us on that trippy show. If you will keep, we'll put the, the newsletter uh, link for Nico's uh, newsletter, uh, Nico's thoughts at the bottom, along with some other things. And remember, if you could uh, leave a question for us for next week's show at iTunes uh, and rate us when you're there, or you can email us your questions at thattrippyshow at gmail.com. Till next week. Hope you'll tell your friends to listen to this one. I think it was a pretty good show. Did you know a 2018 study showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual. When I was four months pregnant, I couldn't find a prenatal I could trust, so I created my own. Ours is made traceable, third-party tested for heavy metals, and recently earned the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. But don't just take my word for it. Get 25% off at ritual.com prenatal.